Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 49, Zama, Battle of Giants. Last time, we covered Scipio's descent on Africa, where he crushed local resistance. Today, we finally reach the end of the Second Punic War. As we remember, with their options rapidly running out, the Carthaginian Council of Elders recalled Hannibal to defend the capital. His extraction from Brutium is not recorded, but it must have been managed skillfully if he was able to both avoid the Roman army facing him as well as the superior Roman navy. After a brief voyage, he landed at Hadrumentum in 202 BC. This success was dampened by the news that his brother Mago, who had fought a guerrilla campaign in Liguria, had died at sea on his journey to rejoin Hannibal. He was Hannibal's last surviving brother. Now, he was truly alone. Still, Hannibal had with him an army of 15,000 to 20,000 veterans from his army of Italy. Even in its diminished state, Livy reports that these men still terrorized the Roman psyche. Quote, Hannibal, moreover, was in command of an army which had been with him through all his years of fighting, an army toughened by hardships almost beyond human endurance, drenched a thousand times with Roman blood and carrying with it the spoils not of soldiers only, but of generals. End quote. Hannibal's mere arrival emboldened the Council of Elders to reject Scipio's peace overtures outright. The Carthaginian citizenry adopted an even more belligerent attitude, looting some Roman supply ships which had wrecked ashore, and nearly lynching Scipio's protesting envoys. Besides offering Scipio a useful opportunity to highlight the quote-unquote Punic faith of his adversaries, these actions signaled a renewal of hostilities. After summoning Massinissa to join him, Scipio descended on the fertile Medharda Valley, ravaging the crops, burning cities, and selling the population into slavery. His scorched-earth campaign soon had its desired effect for the Council of Elders begged Hannibal to intervene and save their estates. Heeding their request, Hannibal marched west for the Massilian capital of Zama, intending, no doubt, to destabilize Massinissa's holdings, as well as pin Scipio between his army and Carthage. If successful, such a move would threaten Roman supply lines and make their position in the interior untenable. Although the exact location of the battle is unknown, Many historians place it upon the plain of Dra el Manan in modern-day Tunis. Both armies encamped within four miles of each other across the plain, and Hannibal sent scouts and spies to scope out the Roman position. These quickly fell into Roman hands. In an act of brazen bravado, Scipio directed that his men show them everything in the camp before sending them back to Hannibal with an escort. Such exalted confidence chilled their hearts, while the more practical side of their report proved equally discouraging. Massinissa had arrived with 6,000 Numidian foot and 4,000 horse, heavily outnumbering the 2,000 Numidians Hannibal had been able to scrounge together under a certain Tychius, a relative of the unlucky Syphax. At this point, an intense desire seized Hannibal to meet with Scipio. It could have been mere curiosity, or a belief that he could influence or intimidate his younger opponent. Perhaps he sensed that fate was driving them onward and wished to face his adversary man-to-man -man before the final struggle. 
whatever his reason, both Polyvius and Livy report that the meeting of these living legends took place halfway between the two armies with no attendance or escort except for a single interpreter who served as the only witness. It must have been an incredible moment, with two heroes of their people sizing each other up, the 45-year-old Hannibal, grown old in victories, quote-unquote, a prodigy from his youth, terror to Rome, and the last survivor of the lion's brood, facing Scipio, who had met Hannibal's first crossing while a mere youth at the Battle of Ticinus, whose father and uncle had perished at Carthaginian hands, and who stood before his nation's nemesis grown to full manhood and, quote, a man of destiny born to destroy Carthage, end quote. Never one to pass up a dramatic scene, Livy gushes that, quote, they were not only the two greatest soldiers of their time, but the equals of any king or commander in the whole history of the world. For a minute, mutual admiration struck them dumb, and they looked at each other in silence. Hannibal was the first to speak. If fate has decreed that I who was the aggressor in the war with Rome, and so many times have had victory almost within my grasp, should of my own will come to ask for peace, I rejoice at least that destiny has given me you, and no other, from whom to ask it. You have many titles to honor, and amongst them, for you too, it will not be the least to have received the submission of Hannibal, to whom the gods gave victory over so many Roman generals, and to have brought to an end this war, which was made memorable by your defeats before ever it was marked by ours. As for myself, an old man returning to the homeland I left in boyhood, the years with their burden of success and failure have so taught me that I would rather now follow the dictates of reason than hope for what luck may bring. End quote. Hannibal then proposed a renewal of the peace terms Scipio had previously offered, but the Roman general harshly rejected the idea, citing the recent breach of the truce by the Carthaginians. According to Polybius, he finished with the ringing challenge, quote, Either put yourself and your country at our mercy, or fight and conquer us, end quote. There would be no more talk. The fate of the war and the course of history would be decided on the field of battle. Next morning, the armies marshaled on the plain. Livy describes how, quote, To decide this great issue, the two most famous generals and the two mightiest armies of the two wealthiest nations in the world advanced to battle, doomed either to crown or to destroy the many triumphs each had won in the past. In all hearts were mixed feelings, confidence alternating with fear. As men surveyed their own and the enemy's ranks, weighing the strength of each by what their eyes could tell them, thoughts of joy and of foreboding jostled for preeminence in their minds. End quote. Both generals extolled their men, Hannibal reminding his veterans of the countless battles won in Italy, including that trinity of triumphs, Trebia, Trasimene, and Cannae, while Scipio claimed that if Rome conquered, the last impediment to her mastery of the Mediterranean would be overcome. The singular purpose of the Romans, conquer or die, stood in stark contrast to Hannibal's motley assortment of troops. He had by now incorporated the remnants of Mago's mercenary army, as well as Carthaginian levies, into his force. According to Livy, quote, 
in an army composed of men who shared neither language, customs, laws, weapons, dress, appearance, nor even a common reason for serving. The best means of arousing the fighting spirit was no simple matter. Hopes and fears, to suit the case, had to be dangled before their eyes. The auxiliaries, for instance, were offered their pay not only in cash, but increased share in the plunder. The fire to kindle the Gauls was their peculiar and, and ingrained detestation of the Romans. To the Ligurians was displayed the bait of the rich plains of Italy, once they had been brought down from their rugged mountains. Moors and Numidians were scared into courage by prospect of Massinissa's tyrannical rule, while the Carthaginians were urged to keep before their eyes all they held dear. The walls of their native city, their household gods, the tombs of their ancestors, their children, and their trembling wives. And to remember the dread alternative, death and slavery on the one hand, world empire on the other, with no middle way, either for fear or hope, between those two extremes. End quote. As we can see from this excerpt, of all these disparate groups, only the Carthaginian levies and Hannibal's veterans shared anything like a common cause. The Carthaginian citizens may have been enthusiastic, but unlike the Roman legionaries, the general populace of Carthage had not served in the army regularly. Meanwhile, the mercenaries had the opposite issue. Skilled in their own respective fighting styles, they had their own reasons for being present, and these diverging desires could hardly have motivated a cohesive army. Hannibal may have been able to fuse his army in Spain and Italy into one of the most fearsome fighting forces of all time, but that had been a process of years, not months. He simply did not have the time he needed to bring the army up to his standards. Thus, Hannibal's dispositions were relatively simple. Although the historians Gilbert and Colette Picard offer the biting comment that, quote, of all Hannibal's great battles, Zama is the one in which his genius is least apparent, end quote. Giving the forces at his disposal, he made the best of the limited options available. In the front rank, he placed his 80 elephants, the largest number he would ever command, in the hopes of frightening the Romans and causing havoc in their lines, reminiscent of Xanthippus at the Battle of the Bergratus. Behind these, he placed the remnants of Mago's mercenary Ligurians and Gauls, along with skirmishers from Mauritania and the Balearics. In the second line, he deployed his Libyan and Carthaginian levies, while in the final ranks he held his veterans from Africa, Spain, and Italy as a final reserve. 2,000 Numidian cavalry under Tychius held the left flank, while the Carthaginian citizen cavalry held the right. In all, his army likely numbered somewhere between 40 to 50,000 troops, giving him a distinct numerical advantage over the 30 to 40,000 Romans present. His three-line formation might have been intended to imitate the Roman triplex Achis, or perhaps he merely wanted to blunt the Roman advance and grind them down before sending in his veterans to finish the job. Scipio likewise had a straightforward battle plan, the 5th and 6th legions, the disgraced survivors of Cannae, burning to avenge their defeat, held the center along with the allied Latin troops. His old lieutenant Laelius held the left wing with the Italian and Roman cavalry, while on the right was Massinissa with his 4,000 Numidians. Despite being outnumbered overall, Scipio's cavalry contingent was far superior to Hannibal's, a fact which would prove decisive. 
Although the Romans drew up in their typical formation, Velites to the front, Hastadii and Principes in the second and third ranks, respectively, and Triarii in reserve, Scipio ordered his men to leave long lanes between units in an effort to counter the elephant threat. Battle began poorly for the Carthaginians. While Hannibal was still addressing his veterans, the Romans sent up a mighty blast of trumpets along with their war cry. Even here, there seemed an ominous difference between the two armies. The Roman war cry was uniform in their united mother tongue, while the Carthaginian answer sounded discordant, since, says Polybius, quoting Homer, quote, Mixed was the murmur, and confused the sound, their names all various, end quote as each Gaul, Ligurian, Numidian, Libyan, Spaniard, and Carthaginian cried out in his native language. Unfortunately for Hannibal, the thunderous noise terrified many of the elephants and sent them hurtling through the ranks of his Numidian auxiliaries. Decisive as ever, Massinissa unleashed a furious charge which swiftly routed his disordered opponents. After trampling a large number of velites, those elephants that actually contacted the Romans now disappeared down the channels Scipio had left between his lines, since elephants typically will not charge a solid formation unless they have to. As they did so, they exposed themselves to a murderous crossfire from the Roman missiles. Others fled back on the Carthaginian cavalry on the right, disrupting these and leaving them at the mercy of Laelius and his Italian cavalry. With the Carthaginian flanks collapsing, Scipio launched his Hestatii and Principes into the first line composed of Hannibal's mercenaries. The Gauls and Ligurians fought with their characteristic bravery, but were borne back by the combined weight of the Roman first and second lines. By contrast, Hannibal's second line of Carthaginian citizens and Libyan levies failed to support the mercenaries, leaving the latter to suspect treachery. Furious, they turned to flee or join with their allies, but the citizens refused to allow them to enter for fear of breaking up their own formation. Trapped between the Romans on one side and their erstwhile allies on the other, the maddened barbarians began hacking at the Carthaginians, forcing the latter to spear them in turn. Thus, a confusing three-way battle ensued, where the barbarians fought the Carthaginians and the Romans fought both but it was a struggle which could have only one outcome. Soon the Carthaginian second line broke, leaving only Hannibal's veterans holding the field. Hannibal himself narrowly staved off disaster for his third line by ordering his soldiers to lower their own spears and fend off the routing warriors and citizens. Scipio, realizing that his men might become disordered as they slogged across a field filled with, quote, Heaps of dead men, piles of bodies and arms, and pools of blood, end quote, sounded the recall to reform his line. Withdrawing the wounded to the rear, he ordered his Hestatii forward while sending his Principes and Triarii to the wings, compressing his maniples into one long line. Hannibal, doubtless sensing that he must crush Scipio now before the victorious Roman cavalry returned from pursuit, ordered his veterans forward to charge the Roman line. So it was that the survivors of Cannae finally met their old foes. Equals in numbers, bravery, and arms, 
Each side fought with a relentless determination. Historian Theodore Aurelit Dodge describes the battle this way, quote, The shock was tremendous. The contention at once became desperate. Hannibal's veterans were fighting for their firesides as well as victory, and gave the example to the rest. The struggle was uncertain. Every manly effort was put forth. The battle on the Roman side was for the mastery of the world, on the Carthaginian for the possession of Africa. Hannibal and Scipio each put his last ounce of moral strength into inciting the ardor of his troops. Each was omnipresent. To each this was the crowning act of the great struggle. The lines met in hand-to-hand contests and held desperately to their ground. The event seemed to hang upon a hair. End quote. Despite this final gallantry, fate had abandoned Hannibal. Returning from the chase, Massinissa and Laelius smashed into the exposed rear of the veterans, sealing their defeat. Few fled, for there would be no escape from the victorious cavalry which scoured the flat plain. Polybius and Livy state that 20,000 Carthaginians fell, along with 20,000 more who were taken prisoner. Total annihilation. The Romans lost 1,500 killed, while their Numidian allies suffered 2,500 casualties. Besides prisoners, Scipio also took 132 standards and 11 elephants. It was a staggering victory, worthy as one of the greatest of the war. The joy and relief from the legionaries must have been palpable. As Dodge succinctly puts it, quote, The vanquished of Cannae were the victors of Zama. End quote. Hannibal was not among the captured. In the confused aftermath of the battle, he escaped to Hadrametum before returning to Carthage. It had been 35 years since he had left as a boy after swearing vengeance on Rome. Now, he bluntly informed the Council of Elders that he saw no hope in continuing the war, and that they should sue for peace. That Hannibal was clear-headed enough to advise such a course, after watching his life's work crumble, stands to his credit. Whether it was a mercy for Carthage in the long run remains to be seen. When envoys arrived to Scipio in a ship decked with olive branches, the typical symbol of peace, his terms were predictably harsh. All overseas territories were ceded. All Italian deserters were to be handed over to Scipio for crucifixion. All warships surrendered except for a paltry ten triremes along with all trained elephants and a ban on training any further war elephants. Carthage was forbidden to make war inside or outside of Africa without permission from Rome. Massinissa received restitution and a favorable treaty arrangement. And finally, a crushing indemnity of 10,000 talents, over 20,000 pounds of silver, and ten times the amount demanded at the end of the First Punic War, was to be paid to Rome over the next 50 years. It was a death blow to Carthaginian hegemony, and would prove in time to be one to Carthage herself. The scale and losses of the Second Punic War defy imagination. Fought from the mountains of Spain to the hills of Italy and the plains of Africa, it spanned 17 years, 16 of which Hannibal maintained himself virtually alone in Italy. It involved nearly every people group of the Western Mediterranean, Brave Gauls and Ligurians, 
swift Numidians, stalwart Libyans, fierce Spaniards, steady Greeks, faithful Italians, and the all-conquering Romans. There were nearly 30 pitched battles in Italy during the war, nearly two-thirds of which directly involved Hannibal's army. His losses, Dodge estimates that Hannibal's 40,000-strong Army of Italy likely cycled through 270,000 men during its 16-year tenure, pale in comparison to Rome's nearly half a million. The devastation in Italian men and land, especially small family farm holdings, would have repercussions for centuries to come and fundamentally reshape Rome's destiny. Indeed, it was to Hannibal more than almost anyone else that Rome owed her transformation from city-state to empire. Rome was beside herself with joy at Scipio's return. The countryside poured out to greet him as he made his way up the Italian coast, and upon his arrival in the capital itself, Scipio Africanus celebrated a spectacular triumph, parading his victorious and redeemed soldiers, his prisoners of war from every corner of the earth, and the treasure and plunder he had captured, 123,000 pounds of silver alone. Games and festivals lasted for days afterwards, as the Romans, in the words of Polybius, quote, expressed with passionate fervor their thanks to the gods and their love for him who had brought about so great a change. End quote. So we close our chapter on the Second Punic War. Take a breath and let us congratulate ourselves at having come this far. Now then, next time, we will cover life after Zama. Until then, take care and read more history. History.